Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you, guys. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talked to historian Tom Rusbridge about leather. Tom did a PhD at the Universities of Birmingham and Sheffield, in which he researched 18th century leather craft. By the way, um, before we started recording, Tom told me about the various sort of innuendos he had to suffer throughout the duration of his PhD at the hands of his friends for doing a PhD about leather, which I'm telling you about now because um, this sort of salacious side of leather is alluded to later in our conversation. We had this chat over the internet during England's lockdown number two, despite actually being less than half a mile away from one another in our respective homes. But I started by asking Tom what we mean by the term leather. When we use the term leather, we're not talking about any one uh, particular material. Um, we're using that as a catch-all to, to describe any one of a number of different materials that are bound together by a shared making process. Um, and so leather at its kind of, at, it, at its core, that is a skin that has been treated by a tanning process to have these very durable, um, water-resistant um, properties. Uh, with that in mind, it can include a sort of at one end um, really, really soft, delicate forms of material such as chamois or suede or pigskin leather, um, which are incredibly fine, incredibly soft. At the other end, we can have tanned ox hides and cow leather, those really kind of common but durable kind of tough materials used for boots and shoes um, in this period and, and the 18th century as well. And so leather leather is essentially a process. Um, and that's what that's what we I think we need to start treating this material more and more as it's leather is process. Leather isn't a single material, it's a family, um, it's a family of different materials. And the and the qualities of those different materials vary so much on the skin of the thing that has been tanned. So I've mentioned cow and goat and those are quite 
common forms. Um, I was really lucky in my research to handle all, I say I was lucky, maybe you won't think I'm lucky when I say <laughs> I've handled tanned human skin, I've handled human leather and it's a fascinating material. It is Whoa. so unbelievably similar to cow skin when you tan it, who knew? Um, who but knew? I've also handled a tanned um, mouse skin, um, oh, wow. which is as small as you can imagine. Imagine one of those huge cow pelts, <laughs> but in such a miniature format. You know. That's cute. Um, how many of them would you need for a jacket? Um, <laughs> but as I say, so what, what binds these all together is um, they all undergo a tanning process. And that's what makes that. So what is that tanning process? So broadly speaking, um, you take the butchered hide of the animal, um, I'm, I'm talking primarily about an early modern historical context okay, cool. here. Yep. Um, so I suppose that's that's where I'm coming from. That's where the journey journey starts, I suppose, in, the, in its history. Um, that butchered hide is then um, soaked initially and then scraped. And what that scraping does is it removes any fur, any hair, any sinew, any adipose tissue, and it pairs that material down to the very kind of the, the base layer, which is a part of the skin called the corium. Um, that's then soaked again and so for every process there's kind of a, a washing and a rinse and repeat that happens um, the hide is then soaked in tanning solutions of varying um, varying concentrations um, it spends anywhere from six to twelve months in those in those different solutions and then it comes out the other end um, it's rinsed again and then that's the point at which you can call it um, that's the point at which you can call it a leather um what's going on in those those tanning solutions so in that kind of that soaking stage what's happening is that the um the skins are being infused with naturally occurring substances that have those properties of being water resistant and being durable um, to get that in there um you so one of the most common of these is oak bark and oak bark resin to get oak bark resin into a tanning solution, you basically um, burn it and grind it down to a powder, and then you mix that with water, and that becomes a tanning solution that the early moderns refer to as an ooze. Um, and that is the technical term, the ooze. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a process which undergoes an awful lot of um, experimentation in the period leading up to leading up to today. So um, what we're dealing with in a modern context um, I was about to say what we're dealing with in a modern context is chrome-based and mineral-based tanning far more commonly. And I can't really talk with a great deal of expertise about that process. But I think it would also be unfair to say that what I just described, which is vegetable-based tanning, um, was um, is, is, is unpopular today. Because actually it is, it is popular and does still remain. And if you think about sort of the, the tanning pits when you're walking around Marrakesh or you know or parts of India you know these these processes still happen and still create level that people people really like and that get used for very you know very popular products so mm. are there what what's the chemical requirement of a tanning substance because chromium sounds very very different from something that comes out of oak well once what's happening and this is based on um it's based on conversations i've had with conservators and, and actually you know your 
your compatriots, fellow material scientists. <laughs> if you um, if you take a real zoom in on a on a hide, um, what you've got are a series of overlapping protein fibers of, of collagen. Um, those are bound by naturally occurring hydrogen bonds, and so as, as I understand it. You may want to edit this out if I'm, if I'm committing a sort of material science faux pas, is that you are effectively stuffing um, the place where those um, where those hydrogen bonds were, which are naturally occurring. And mm. so after after the animal dies, rigor mortis sets in, and that's because that naturally occurring hydrogen isn't there anymore to enable protein fibres to rotate and sort of flex over the top of one another. Mm. It's putting that material in that place. And so oak resin is one material that works. I'm not sure what the case is for the kind of the more mineral mm. um, materials, but thinking to my period in particular, 18th century scholars and tanners were meaning incredibly investigative about the kinds of materials that could be used to do this thing. Mm. And so it started with, well, the process of experimentation starts really in earnest in the, in the 16th century, but across the 17th century and into the 18th. You have Danish and English scholars um, experimenting with different materials. You've got people looking into different types of root. So there's a, a guy called um, Charles Valancey mm-hmm. um, who investigates the materials in Ireland versus the rest of Europe. And this is um, a text called The Art of Tanning Currying Leather. Um, now, The Art of Tanning and Currying Leather, published in 1770-ish, in Dublin first, then has two reruns in, in London, um, has a unique preface, and that was written by Charles Valancey, and that's about understanding why in Ireland tanning isn't taking off, and it's because they can't use their own natural um, materials, mm. he says. So oak bark is fairly scarce in Ireland, and so there are a series of experiments using tormental root and uh, an organic substance called sink uh, foil, Chinkfoil, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, um, and then translates a French work, which is a kind of tanning across Europe. Mm. This is a kind of a really rubbish, lonely planet book, observing different <laughs> types of tanning <laughs> happening across the continent. Um, but the basic point is that it needs to have some kind of oily particles within it that can then be burnt down and infused with this ooze. Um, and so there are tanners in France using um, uh, rotten citrus fruit that's reported. Um, there is um, plum being used. There are the thorns um, of vine plants being used. Only oh, yeah. the thorns. So you've got to feel sorry for the person's job it is to remove those from the plant. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the basic point is that across that period, what was once sort of perceived to be this kind of this hallowed material of oak bark um, undergoes a lot of undergoes a lot of revision. Mm. Um, that more materials work than they first thought yeah so I suppose from that we can learn that the the tanners or the people that were working with leather were very experimental I suppose and they were you know they were interested in finding all sorts of different materials that they could use based on their kind of local area I suppose um but what else can we learn about people from the leather that they worked with or the leather that they used I love that you use the word local there um, because locality is a really is a really really key thing. Um, and so when we look at when we look at tanning, I think we see um, a manufacturing process that is actually kind of deeply rooted um, 
and that's a that's a pun as well in its in its local geography um you've got to access hides um and those hides typically come from um a local butcher who is butchering animals from relatively local agriculture the meat is being consumed locally and then those hides have to be um rinsed and scraped and that's of course that's a local process but you're if I wanted to really kind of hammer this point home, you're using local water in a physical place. Um, once that's happened, you go through this tanning process, steeping those hides in different different concentrations of ooze, and those are those are oozes that are made using local materials. And so, I think it's really interesting to to look at leather and think about how, for a material, certainly in the early modern period, that was so common and was so was used for so many different types of object and to think about well how how very localized that material process was compared to I mean I remember growing up and reading made in China on the underside of um, on the underside of everything mm. um, I don't suppose that on mass we're getting much more much more local with our, our purchases today um, so to to think about how local that process is presents a very, a very different vision of the vision of the world. I think it's it's a useful point of comparison for us. And then at, at the same time, it, it's that that nature of the environment. Um, and what I really do love about the story of leather is when you look at this material, how very very explicit its environmental connections are in the very nature of the thing. Uh, so I remember this. This was a brilliant thing. I used to, um, I used to be uh, an official on um, on fencing competitions, <laughs> and um, I remember this was so to to orchestrate these these competitions. The um, by the national governing body, um, you know, they hired halls and spaces, and competitions happened all over the place. And as volunteers, we got you know kind of airlifted in to deliver a competition and you know, put up in a local B&B somewhere, do the competition, get the train home. Um, why do I say that? <laughs> because I remember once staying with um, a referee, so we, you know, shared a room, um, and he had a pair of really kind of wonderfully luxurious um, leather bags, which he was carrying all this stuff in. And I remember seeing these, you know, imagine the kind of Mary Poppins style, I forget what you'd call those kind of bags, but wonderful leather bags. And I remember him saying, they really stuck and he said, oh, I really love these because, you know, you can, you can tell that it's a real, it's a real material. You can tell. And he was pointing. So there was this kind of almost like a birthmark along the side. They were quite light, light coloured bags. Um, and he said, and you can see that's where the cow that was used to make this had, had a kind of, had a graze or had a cut or a blemish on mm. its skin. Um, and so where am I going with this? Where I'm going is that leather is um, very, very closely integrated with its environment in a way that modern materials and, and products today aren't. Um, and I think it's it's quite telling for early modern consumers. Or is it quite telling for us? I think it's quite telling for us that early modern consumers were using so commonly a, a material that was a really, really clean representation of the environment in its very being. So you had a skin that was that was tanned and you could see hair follicles on the surface you could see um the top grain you knew where it came from this is all kind of this is all public information 
Um, and there's a, there's a sense of there's a sense of pride that comes with that. And so, 18th century authors write about the pride of a national economy and a, and a product um, that is really the output of the environment and the labour of local people. Mm. Um, and there's also a sense of I think responsibility. Um, and there's that there's that sense of being dutiful to the object. Um, and so, early moderns don't like waste generally speaking um but there's a sense of being responsible to the animal as well and i think that's really important when we think about plastic consumption today and how throwaway things are and how we're you know knowingly making products and using products that if they break we've got a very very slim chance of, of fixing or at least fixing ourselves um so i think that's this positive example a very very long-winded answer to your question what can this making process and what can leather tell us about people and society as well it tells us that they had very different preoccupations than we mm. do today but i think i think consumers today do still value materials like leather um above their you know synthetic alternatives like um you know polyurethane um the, these kind of shoes that look like leather but they're actually made of polymers um I mean, I know that I definitely would, if I was going to buy like, right, for example, when last time I bought walking boots, I wanted to buy walking boots that would last me at least 10 years. So I went into the shop and I bought, I, I was aiming to buy their most expensive leather walking boots <laughs> because there, I think there's a few things in life that you just get exactly what you pay for and walking boots and sometimes waterproofs are <laughs> examples Absolutely. of that. Like. You know, things that you really rely on for durability and to last for a long time. Um, and synthetic alternatives just don't compare. You know, they're not breathable. They're not as durable um, as leather, which is this really traditional material, but we still rely on it and value it. Mm. I think people do. I think, well, I think leather today has got, there are challenges. So mm. number one, uh, you just touched on it, is is cost. So leather is a relatively expensive material and we do have to accept that you know, that that kind of that expense may make it a less less accessible mm. material in which case i mean there's a there's a there's a question about what more could be done to make it more accessible i suppose and then there's a, a question about sort of this question about that sort of that cost versus immediate need so you said that you aim to sort of go and get the, the best walking boots that you could good the best leather walking boots that you could um and with the plan that they would last you 10 years and i think that's i mean that's a, an eminently sensible approach well, now that i'm here <laughs> congratulating you on your walking boot purchase <laughs> <laughs> but um that makes yeah that makes perfect sense um but plastic is generally cheaper and generally easier and are we mm. i mean there's a kind of as a collective consumer mindset are we programmed towards kind of quick fixes versus more expensive upfront but longer durability i don't know and i often you know i i've given a few um a few say papers since the, the phd actually the question i'm getting more and more now more so than i did when i started that project which would be 20 2015 um is about well you know, you say, Tom, what do you think about leather today in terms of the ethics of animal consumption mm. um, and veganism? And, you know, there's vegan leathers do exist. So there's um, 
pineapple skin and pineapple fiber is often used as the basis of the vegan leathers. I've never handled it. Um, maybe that says something about me, but I've handled human leather, but not pineapple. <laughs> um, and mushroom-based leathers mm. exist as well, called muskin. Um, I can't say that I've ever seen a vegan leather on the shelf in a, in a shop, though, so I wonder, I don't know how accessible those materials are either. Um, but yeah, I think I think there are people who still value it, and then I I think there's also sort of the the changing context by which this material can can be valued. I'm not sure. It's an interesting one. Yeah, it really is. I suppose there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, isn't there? Because I think um, is it true to say that still today leather is a kind of byproduct of the meat industry? Is it the same kind of product stream that comes through there as far as, as, far as i know yes i mean the this is so there are a few ways to get um to get the hide off an animal without it without it being butchered at, at first uh, i think what we're doing is we are being more and more um more and more thrifty now so i think um one animal skin can go further than than it did in mm. an early model context so one one common material is something called bonded leather have you come across this no i don't think so so, so when i came i mean god we've made the jokes about my my thesis already i mean imagine when i had to use a term like bonded leather for <laughs> um, but when you so when you um when you tan a, a hide there's a there's a swelling process that happens okay. so um the materials in the um in the tanning liquor interact with the innate materials within the skin and it creates a, a swelling. So actually um, it grows something like sort of seven times oh, wow. its um, thickness while being tanned. Um, how do you handle that? Um, you slice the thing. So you, 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 know, you literally imagine, as my screen, imagine that sort of that thick, so you just slice it across that, that kind of cross surface um, to get it down to the size that it needs to be of course that creates a kind of a rough surface but then you buff it and you curry it or you polish yeah. it um and you know plenty of shoe polish on something that's good as good as new from our school day stores anything as, as well um but in doing that that kind of that slicing process um you create loads and loads of tiny tiny little leather fragments right everywhere somebody sweeps all those things up puts a very kind of um puts kind of a loose adhesive around them and then presses them into a surface. And so if you've ever had a, a belt or, I mean, it's commonly belts, but sort of, I don't know, like a sort of a, a kind of a leather wristband uh-huh. um, or maybe a strap on a bag. And it's, you know, you've bought it and it has said on it, genuine leather. And you bought it in good faith that that is genuine leather. Yeah. It is genuine leather. It's just thousands of pieces of tiny, tiny, tiny genuine <laughs> leather bound together with glue. Um <laughs> And then with a, um, a you know, a, um, an acrylic yeah. skin-like cover put over the top. Interesting. We're doing that now. And, you know, that's making the kind of the volume of leather we're producing mm. further in a way that early, model, early models weren't. Um, why did I say that? <laughs> well, I'm we were talking sure. about, um, I was asking you whether, you know, essentially my question was that I was going for was really you know is we were talking about the the ethics of the leather industry or the ethics of using leather and 
I suppose I was thinking really if if animals are being consumed in the meat industry anyway and their hides are in general an off an off cast of that process then isn't it better to use that material than to have it go to waste mm. yeah and I would I mean I, I would argue yes I don't see what I don't see what you're doing for the environment or the animal by by discarding it yeah exactly that's what I was thinking I mean I don't eat meat even but I do buy leather products because mm. it's just such a better material <laughs> is it, but, it, it, but it is and that's the that, that's I mean there's a brilliant brilliant text what's it called Spectacle de la Nature which is a, an 18th century text uh, Nicolas Antoine Pluche I think um, and I can't remember who who produced the English translation um but yeah, there's a there's a wonderful passage in there, which is something along the lines of, you know, what what can compare to the luster of ermine, and what can compare to the strength of ox, and what can compare um, to I don't know the softness of something else. You know, it's this material works very well, mm. um, and that's that's kind of yeah, that's a kind of blunt blunt truth, I think. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, I wonder if we can go back and talk about historical leather again. Um, and it would be great to hear if there's sort of one or possibly two stories of objects from your studies that particularly embody um, what you think of as like the the story of leather. It'd be great to hear one or two of those. The warning note is that it, it's difficult to, for leather objects, it's, it's quite difficult to have a sort of an object biography. Okay. Um, and so what we're dealing with with leather is often very functional objects that people didn't write about. Um, and... And this is true. I'm not. This isn't the only a sort of a leather exclusive problem. Material culture um, historians 
working with other types of material and other kind of categories of object like this as well. Um, that said, I, I think it would be it would be a real shame to try and tell a story of leather without looking at saddlery mm. in some shape or form. Um, and there is a there is a really sort of classic, wonderful example sitting in the um, sitting in the cloth workers centre, um, which is part of the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is they've they've got it in their stores there. It's a 17th century object. It's a really kind of classic saddle design um, with yellow velvet sort of seat and embroidery on the top is yeah it's a wonderful object uh, i don't think it's actually on display um and maybe i don't know maybe this podcast could have a kind of a political edge <laughs> get it on display you know <laughs> come on um but um saddlery is a is a it's a wonderful object because there are so few objects which have to work simultaneously equally well um for two different types of living organism right and so saddles have to work really well for the horse that they're on the back of because you know of course i hate to think of a horse in pain but at the same time if you're an 18th century rider and the saddle doesn't fit the horse it's going to it's going to damage the skin it's going to cause the horse discomfort it's going to put the horse out of action. That's got a financial um, implication for you. And then it's got to be comfortable for you, the rider, to, to use. Um, and so there's this, that, there's this really kind of fascinating function of an object, which I don't think you see many examples of. And then that's all underpinned by the, the narrative around horse riding that exists in the 17th and 18th centuries, which is that you need to be really, really at one with the animal that you're riding. And so there's this, there's this idea that comes from a, a, um, an author in the period called Bourgelat, um, which is about the horse and the rider becoming the, the centauric being. And the idea is that move as one, there's this perfect kind of um, symbiosis of movement. There's this kind of shared goal, this shared, um, this shared intention, this shared attitude, everything about you and your horse have to be really insane, right? And so you've got function and then you've got culture really requiring that the two um, the two organisms work together. And that's mirrored in the design. And so the typical early modern saddle, you've got um, what's called the pads. And those are kind of stuffed cushions that are at the very base of, um, of the, the saddle. Then you've typically got the saddle tree, which is a hard wooden sometimes it's got metal components but generally it's wood which is a hard wooden wooden frame that sort of provides the kind of the rough basis so that's a generally a kind of a blunt instrument and then you've got the panel at the top which is the leather overpiece which then the rider sits on so it's generally three parts um, and what's interesting two things i think um, one these objects are described skin incredibly commonly there's about a third of cases in newspaper adverts that i looked at and, I, and this is in a sample i think it's about four thousand um in about a third of cases these are described as skin which is much more common than shoes and much more common in breeches as well which are other objects where skin is um it's a sort of a key imperative um second interesting thing is that the structure of these saddles closely mirrors early modern conceptions of how the skin was constructed as well. So you've got that exterior, which is the kind of the tough scarf skin, 
and the idea is that you know there's a turning point in the 18th century about how your body reflects your your personality and there's a, a whole other historiography around that um it's a really interesting point where those two ideas come together the sort of the physical construction of the objects as reflecting the layers within human skin and the idea that these objects are described as skin in the context of something that has to fuse physically mm. and culturally two different organisms together. I think that what we're seeing is quite a quite an, a sort of an explicit representation of a very conceptual idea happening without any real intent behind it. Um, and so if you're going to pay attention to leather, you've really got to pay attention to, to saddles. It's yeah. There's just so much to say about that object, mm. and I'm sorry if that that kind of that meandering has created something quite difficult for you to, to edit. <laughs> no, but not well. at all. I'll probably just keep it all in. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you said that you don't, you're not still researching this at the moment. But when you came to the conclusion of your PhD, were there any questions yet to be answered? Do I um? So I'm mean, thinking about where my where my PhD sits. I do, you know, I do, I do entertain the idea of going back to some historical research on on the side. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so where my PhD was, I mean, there was a in that kind of I don't know to, to historicise myself that kind of post 2010. There was a really big wave of PhD students interested in materials and objects. And if you if somebody ever does a big kind of a big history of British history PhDs in the 2010s. That would be one of the big trends is people got more passionate about objects than they have done before. Mm. Um, and what I think a lot of, what I think me and a lot of my, my peers at the time um, were trying to do was to sort of bring together cultural history, which I suppose in the grand scheme of things is, is relatively more modern than dealing with representations and dealing with cultural norms and how society worked with those um, and a very old school form of sort of consurial history and if you imagine any of those wonderful old books on the shelf I mean I've got got one which is sort of English dining room clocks 1660 to 1800 I mean imagine who's got the, the time but the passion to Amazing. just compile those yeah. kinds of books anyway so there was a there was a need to bring together those two different um kind of types of history um to show how objects have got quite powerful cultural underpinnings which shaped how people lived in these periods my question was about the relationship between objects consumers and materials and it was about testing that within one chronology and within one material type and I chose leather because I felt it was particularly cross-class you know the poorest of the poor used leather as buckets and bellows and working tools and the richest of the rich had fine leather upholstery and leather gilt wall panels and um, I think that there is scope to test that question about how consumers related to materials through objects and to objects through materials. Um, yes, I think there's scope to test that question with a broader range of materials, um, with a broader range of organics. And I think that there, are, there are questions to be asked about um, testing, testing that question, sort of considering 21st century consumption versus 
18th century or earlier consumption as well. Mm, yeah, so interesting. When we were talking earlier about um, the kind of materials properties of leather, I suppose, being superlative to their polymer alternatives, um, I was thinking of other sort of naturally derived materials that follow, I think, a similar pattern. For example, wool, um, you know, by far the most superior fibre still, even though we have all these kind of modern um, textiles now, it's still... Um, has the best combination of materials properties. Similarly, wood, carbon fibre, kind of similar now, but, you know, in terms of strength to weight ratio, wood is still, like, really incredible as a material. Um, so, yeah, I think there would definitely be scope for an exploration of other similar um, similar materials, yeah. Yes, yeah, that is fascinating, because I've seen... Um... Okay, I mean... I natural organic products I think will probably always be slightly more expensive than their synthetic counterparts but there is a it's quite interesting in some cases how these organic materials have become presented as the kind of the luxury alternative and I've seen in sort of catalogues and in in shops so as I, as I was saying we're preparing to move so we've been you know doing the IKEA round okay. um, but I've seen you know woolen duvets as right. being this kind of incredibly luxurious thing yeah you know how can it how can it be the case that the thing that we've had for the longest is the luxury the luxury item Mm. yeah that's really interesting yeah so true I was um I've been reading a bit about wool um for the book that I've just written um in fact there's a whole chapter on it and um apparently there was you know wool has been an amazing material throughout the majority of human history and then there was this big crisis in the early 20th century when suddenly you know synthetic polymers came along and you could make items of clothing for so much cheaper than their wool alternatives um so there was this big kind of wool demand crash and it was like almost the end of wool because plastics was seen just seen as so much cheaper um and so they had to invent uh to to make wool as competitive as plastics again they had to get rid of wool's main drawback which was like the felting and the you know woolly jumpers going bobbly and you couldn't put them in the washing machine which was like a big thing now for the middle classes to have washing machines at home and stuff so they invented superwash wool and i think the 60s possibly slightly later um which essentially like smooth down all of those little scales that you get on hair um so that it wouldn't then mat up in the washing machine and that finally made wool like competitive again so it's interesting that sometimes synthetics can push these natural materials to being even better with like slightly different processes um and yeah i'm sure they will continue to change as we change as a society as well Hmm. that's fast i had no idea about that about wool. well i mean yeah. Yeah. Well, likewise. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, if people have enjoyed hearing from you and want to kind of learn more about historical leathers, is there anywhere that you can direct them, either a book or maybe a museum or your own writings, um, so they can find out more? So, well, in terms of my own writings, there's um, yeah, there's I mean, there's a smattering of blogs. So if you Google me plus leather, um, and my thesis will be available out of embargo in January nice. um, by the University of Birmingham. So that's that's there. Um, <laughs> For a really deep dive. <laughs> um, but I would, um, I'd heartily recommend uh, the National Leather Collection. Oh, cool. Um, I've not heard of that. It's, um, it's a really, it's a wonderful 
Museum um, in Northampton. Uh-huh. Uh, they're actually based in the Grosvenor, is it the Grosvenor Central, Grosvenor Square uh, shopping centre um, opposite Eurochange. You have to go up a few flights of stairs. Um, <laughs> but um, they've got a very informative website as well. Cool. Um, wonderful people. So yeah, Nas- National Leather Collection. And actually that National Leather Collection is it's got that branding now prior to that it's been the the british leather collection and the international museum of Leathercraft. it's had a few iterations over the oh, years cool. but it's ultimately um the kind of the, the fruits of the labor of um a guy called john water and i think clive spears was the the other guy um but john water certainly wrote volumes and volumes and volumes on leather um all very accessible they're quite old text now i think that the earliest of those is 1942-ish. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a mid-war period text. Um, but nevertheless, that you know, interesting. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I mean, absolute pleasure. I mean, <laughs> really, I've enjoyed this a lot. You know, um, very different sort of Monday, but a very happy one. <laughs> thanks. So that was the awesome Tom Rusbridge. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to come on the podcast. That's all for this week. As always, I'd be super grateful if you're able to take the time to like and subscribe or recommend the podcast to a friend. If you feel like giving a one-time donation to help support the costs of running the podcast, you can do so at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade. Thanks so, so much to those who have already taken the time to do that. If you've got any material questions you'd like answered, then do get in touch. We're at Real Talk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, on Twitter and on Instagram at HandmadePod. You can get in touch on email at realtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Dave Shepard for our marvellous cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. So until next time, thanks as always for listening and I'll look forward to seeing you next time on Handmade. 